Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. Now, our guest this week comes from the education sector. Bill Hulsman is an independent consultant who designs rituals, supports educators, and facilitates dialogue. And you'll see that during our conversation today. See, Bill previously served as Director of Academic Affairs, Professional Development, Social Action, and Campus Ministry at multiple schools throughout the country. Now, as you will experience, Bill is unafraid to address the real issues. And based upon my own experiences, I see Bill as an explorer. He's provocative, fair, and extremely well-read. In fact, Bill was a speaker at our 2020 Leadership in the Age of Personalization Summit, and he will attend as a consortium member to the 2021 Summit that will be hosted by Lightspeed VT in Las Vegas. Now, we'll explore how we can unleash individuality at the summit by interrupting our assumptions about who belongs where, doing what, and how. So make sure that you register now to watch the live streaming free at 2021summit.ageofpersonalization.com. Now, during this podcast interview, we'll talk about the importance of prioritizing people and discuss when and why we start prioritizing institutions over people and how it contributes to building a sense of fear from change and how that's impacting our efforts to transform both individually and collectively. So before we get started, please click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopi so that you're in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Bill, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Glenn. And I'm, I'm flattered and honored by your introduction. Well, come on, Bill. It's not as if I haven't experienced you enough to know that that introduction <laughs> is, is real and true, my friend. So on that note, uh, let's get to know you as an individual. Let's give our audience an opportunity to get to know you. So when right. preparing for our discussion, Bill, you told me that you enjoy making meaning. Please elaborate. What is making meaning? Yeah, meaning meaning is one of those one of those concepts, one of those ideas that we think is really in, intangible, right? I actually think it's more tangible than we think it is. So, you know, meaning I think of that as a product of our experiences and our history and who we are. Um, and uh, and and when we have an experience, we can be conscious of. Uh, how our past, how our present, and how our future are intersecting. And what is it telling me about the world? What is it telling me about myself? What is it telling me about people around me? You know, so it's, uh, so it's the product of the intersection of all these things. Um, and it, the meaning that you can create, the meaning that you can discern, 
you can draw on for motivation or energy or comfort or, or challenge, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, uh, but that, that meaning becomes fuel. It becomes a motivator for uh, the next moment in your life. Mm. Um, I, I, I think meaning begins you know, the, the search for meaning, you know, there, uh, there are a lot of books about it. <laughs> Man's search for meaning is one of the most popular. Um, but it, it doesn't always have to be heavy. It doesn't always have to be deep philosophy. I think it starts with paying attention to the little things, paying attention to our experiences, paying attention to our relationships, paying attention to the things that make us laugh. You know, that, those are all moments that we can stop and discern what of my past is meeting this present and how will that guide me into the future? That's making meaning. That's beautiful, Bill. And, you know, as we think about uh, the tensions that we've been experiencing between the age of standardization and the age of personalization, it, it begs the question, Bill, um, how did we make meaning of anything during the age of standardization uh, that really unknowingly or perhaps knowingly attempted to define us? Hmm. I, I think meaning makers have been present and active and uh, influential in every generation. They take on different names. They take on different capacities. They take on different roles in society. So it, it's always been there. I think uh, with the age of standardization, like so much of the modern era, uh, modernization, industrialization, um, capitalization of everything happens, right? So even art, even music, even, uh, you know, personal care becomes monetized, becomes commercialized. Um, so, so, so the meaningful stuff, the typical spaces or the typical um, experiences that people would look to, to make meaning, to have a meaningful experience, um, suddenly becomes um, uh, second to the monetized version or to the productive version uh, or option in, in life. So, so I think in the age of standardization, uh, when we start to pay attention to the ways that our uh, experiences, our institutions, our, the things that we've built up around us, um, those are blocking us in some way. And if we can pay closer and closer attention, we can start to dismantle that wall and start to enter into whatever's next. I think you, you speak so beautifully about the, the shift from standardization to personalization. I think it echoes the cultural shifts that um, we've been seeing in art and philosophy and science in terms of moving from the modern age to the postmodern age. And we don't have a better name for it than the call of the postmodern age because we're in the middle of it or we're at the start of it. So we don't even know what's going to characterize um, the life that we're living. Um, the standardized instinct is to quick Put a name on it right so every generation that comes up they start you know we start seeing a trend therefore they're the millennials therefore they're the generation y you know they get a name but they haven't had uh we don't have the the, the distance yet to be able to see what is the real impact what's really different um, so along the way i think that you know to be able to facilitate the change from standardization to personalization uh we have the opportunity to be intentional about it to pay attention to little things, be very intentional about what is the world that we want to see, what's the world we want to create, and then move that way. And assume that we all have agency, we all have authority in doing that. We don't just hand it over to uh, the dominant um, businesses or politicians or cultural voices um, that want to shape 
uh, our path in, in some way. So every one of us has a has an opportunity to shape that that transition uh, from this age to what's next. It doesn't just happen; we create it. So the more we can engage that um, that agency, the faster we can bring on what's next. I love it, Bill. And you know, you always have such an eloquent way of describing things. And, and the reason I wanted to stay on, you know, making meaning uh, for just a moment is that I think that that's what uh, the pandemic and the social unrest did. It became an accelerant for people to ask themselves, what matters to you? What, how do you make meaning for yourself, uh, for those around you, for your loved ones? Um, you know, what, what's next for you as an individual and, and how can you uh, influence the world around you in ways that aren't predefined for you. So thank you for, for touching on that, Bill. The, the next question I have is, you know, how do you create space? And maybe you touched on this a little bit already, but how do you create space to make uh, the most important changes that matter to you or uh, to build community? I mean, why is this your jam? <laughs> uh, meaning making is my jam. Um, it's fun. It's, uh, you know, it's when you, when you start to see your capacity in this world and you start to understand it, uh, you, you can feel burdened. You can feel <laughs> stressed out by it. Uh, but you can also feel empowered, empowered by it. You can enjoy it. So that, you know, that we have gifts and we have capacities and we see the world one way. Let's figure out what we have to offer to make it a different way to make it the, the, the world that we envision, right? Um, I love having those conversations with people. I want to hear what they envision for the world. Um, I, I love doing weddings because I get to, to work with a couple and I think about, uh, we think about together, what's the world they want to see? And then we design the wedding around that. And we start planning the ceremony as an exposure to the world that they want to create. They're going to invite everybody into that world for a minute. And that's going to change everybody. That's going to Im impact everybody in some, uh, some meaningful and significant way. And they're going to take that with them. You know, so it's, uh, I enjoy meaning making um, because of that, uh, that process um, and the intimacy that comes with it, and, but also the real insight that comes with it. I like seeing how culture is created. I like seeing how relationships um, shape people. Um, so, so yeah, when I say meaning making is my jam, it's because uh, it's, it's totally enjoyable. Looking back over my career, uh, everything that I've really been energized by, everything that I've really uh, felt really successful in uh, has been tapping into that, that same pot, right? Tapping into that, that, that joy of paying attention, that joy that comes from understanding something about someone or how we can change this little thing to make that experience that much better for someone over there so this is a good transition to uh first of all bill thank you for that i i certainly have gotten to know you better and we've talked quite a bit um so how how do you define uh the difference between change and transformation i mean i think we all need to be mm -hmm. reminded that you know before the pandemic and social unrest uh many institutions or and organizations were already in crisis i mean disruption was in full swing so given your human side of the ways that you think, what's the difference in your mind between change and transformation? 
Yeah, I, I think it's really important to clarify the distinction between that, because I think when uh, when most folks are talking about transformation, they're really talking about change and they're connected, but they're not the same. Change uh, can be natural. Change is passive. It happens to you. Um, it's instinctive, um, but it's limited. It's temporary. So a change is a discrete um, uh, difference that happens uh, that happens to you. Um, it might be in a response to something. It might be adapting to something. It might be it, so. It's totally natural. We see that those kinds of changes, and we affect small changes every day in response to other things. And they're not necessarily intentional. They're not necessarily pursuing a vision, right? That's where transformation, I think, is distinct. It's unnatural. It quite literally, the word means to undergo a change in form. So it it, it it's very directly an unnatural process. It's not about preserving the original state in any way. It's about, uh, it's only limited by what we can imagine and the tools that are at our fingertips. So um, in transformation, yeah, the original state is gone. It's irrelevant. If we cling to that original state that we left behind, that we transformed out of, that only invites suffering and grief, right? And, and uh, conflict. So, uh, so transformation is, is an intentional um, elevation of change. I think a lot of little changes can contribute toward transformation, mm. but it's, I think of it as an intentional process. So the person or the group or the, re, uh, the, the bigger group, you know, community uh, that is seeking or experiencing some transformation, they've got a direction they want to go. They see who they want to be over there. Um, and they're going to use whatever experiences to affect small changes toward that transformation. So it's, it, I also don't think it's a single moment of transformation, right? It's a process. It, you know, you don't, we, we, we celebrate birthdays every year to mark some sort of progress and growth. But, um, you know, it's not like you turn 13 and all of a sudden puberty like kicks in high, high drive. You know, it, it's been happening over time. It's just we've used these markers to, to make sense of it and to make meaning of it. So I have to ask the question is, so is it transformation that we seek or is it evolution? Hmm. I think if it's a question of what we seek, I hope we're seeking transformation because we're already experiencing evolution. The difference is, um, if it's just happening to us, then, then we're not contributing to it. Then it's not any, we're not creating it. We're not partnering with the universe in, in shaping it, <laughs> you know? So I think, uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a fair distinction. So, so Bill, what is, how do you begin to see all of this from more of a human perspective? Hmm. Okay, well, I've got a couple of a uh, couple of tacks toward this, and this is one approach. This is my approach coming from my starting point. So I don't I don't uh, intend this to be universal rules. That I'm not going to write a, a self help book that's going to say these are the this is the silver bullet. You know, this is so. This is one starting point. Um, on one level, somewhere along the line, we uh, we started prioritizing institutions over people. Um, 
this reflects a worldview that is very, very ancient. So somewhere over time, this didn't happen in, you know, after the, the uh, after the sixties, this happened thousands of years ago. We've been, we've been building this worldview for a long time, but it's not the only worldview. It's not the only way to see the world. Anyway, it reflects this ancient worldview that there is an ideal out there. There is a perfect out there, you know, the, the, the values of beauty and truth and, you know, that the, there, there is some ideal form out there and we, and the world that we live in are really just some sort of imperfect imitation or echo or shadow or, um, a degraded version of that ideal. So our job as humans in that worldview is to try to be perfect, try to pursue that ideal. Um, and I think we see this reflected in, you know, uh, we've, we've built institutions to prop up this idea and, you know, everything from hierarchical, hierarchical governments and religious organizations uh, to the pomp and circumstance of the Olympics. So, okay. So the Olympics, I think is a great example of, do we value the institution or the human? And Simone Biles rocked the world when she withdrew from competition. Mm -hmm. um, one athlete had a rough week and withdrew and it created this international uh, clamor of why what's happening. I think, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, when she chose to attend to her own needs and to cheer on her team from the side, you know, except for the, her last event uh, in this meta ritualized event of the Olympics, right? Everything's heightened. Anyway, she, <laughs> in that moment communicated with her actions, the person is more important than the institution. Simone Biles is not a martyr to the modern experiment of the Olympics. Um, there is more to life than a medal. So, and I hope every child in America <laughs> absorbs that message from, from this experience um, because they're the ones who are gonna be the agents of transformation down the line. And the earlier they can hear the message, which is pretty countercultural, that you are infinitely more important than the institutions that you are part of, that you make up, uh, then we'll, I think we'll see long-term change come a little bit faster. So the first thing I think we can do, we can follow Biles' example sure. of uh, you know, valuing in very clear, discrete ways, the person is more important than the institution. Um, the second thing, you know, I think we forget that institutions are people, like we think of them as these abstractions. Again, I think it's an echo of that ancient worldview, that there is some perfect, there's this abstract institution that I should revere, whatever the institution is. Um, but those institutions are made up of people. You know, like, uh, recently, the Citizens United versus the F F uh, FEC uh, Supreme Court opinion comes to mind. It's problematic in giving institutions status equivalent to people. Um, but it sparked a conversation um, about the people at the center. Um, both the people being disenfranchised by institutional consolidation of power and the people in the institutions who are using the institutions or hiding behind them. Um, so we see uh, the institutions have been empowered in our culture today. Um, but another negative aspect of this is that um, we assume that the people within the institution are also all on the same page. And that's an illusion. You know, we can't assume um, that you know, all queer people want this or all Republicans want that. That, I think in your language, would be the return to tribalism, right? So, so I think the second thing to do is to develop our own critical lenses, to be able to see beyond the facade, 
see beyond the abstraction of the institution, whatever the institution is, and prioritize the people that make up the institution. Um, we, we spend a lot of time talking about institutional change or organiza organizational change. Um, but how often in that conversation do we say, oh, and it starts with personal change. Hmm. So uh, <laughs> I think we need, to, we need to prioritize people, the agency of people in those institutions, right? So if you want change to happen in an institution and the institution is made up of people, well, isn't it just so obvious? You got to start with the people. So there's a, this, uh, this brings up a quote uh, that is everywhere. Um, you see it on mugs and T-shirts and motivational posters, and it's attributed to Gandhi. And, you know, it's be the change that you wish to see in the world. That's lovely. However, <laughs> that's not what Gandhi wrote. Um, here's the full quote. Gandhi wrote, we but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. A man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards him. This is the divine mystery supreme, a wonderful thing it is, and the source of our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do. I think that last line is the one that should be on all the coffee mugs, right? We need not yeah. wait to see what others do. So Gandhi lays out the difference between change and transformation here in a way. Uh, you know, each discrete change is limited. But when we make those changes toward a vision, then we're opening ourselves. We're opening the door to transformation. Um, the popular misquote, I think, misses the most important insight from Gandhi. Um, our connection to the world, our integration into the world. So the misquote bolsters independence, that notion of I can change and I'm going to change the world and I'm the hero. Right. That's classic Messiah complex. Um, but Gandhi was actually pointing to interdependence. Is actually recognizing that any change I make in myself is going to have an impact on the people in the world around me and vice versa, right? It's reciprocal. It's iterative. It, it, it's unpredictable because it's just going to keep going with every interaction. So that interdependence is what he's really pointing to. So I think when we, when we start focusing on um, changing people and owning our agency within institutions, um, that's where real deep transformation and equitable transformation can really start. So, you know, when we, I, I, when we don't start with it. Oh yeah. Okay. So Bill, I am talking. blown away by this. And, and so I have to ask this question. Isn't, hasn't the time come where we all need to turn the spotlight of accountability on ourselves? I mean, why do we always wait for permission to do most things, unless you're a, you know, an entrepreneur that uh, recognizes that um, their future is dependent upon them taking the actions. But, but why is it that people don't look at themselves in the mirror and say, what mm -hmm. can I do better? Why mm -hmm. do we have to wait? Is, has this become just a, a byproduct of standardization? I mean, or are we really fearful to... Um, find ways to evolve ourselves. Hmm. There was a there was a commercial several years ago, uh, and now I can't remember the origin of the commercial. I, I think it was in Southeast Asia, and there was a piece of garbage on the ground, and a crowd sort of forms around this piece of trash, and everyone's arguing about it. Oh, 
I can't believe this piece of trash is here. Oh, uh, somebody should have thrown that out. Oh, how dare somebody just leave this around? And, um, and the crowd grows and they're all figuring with each other and they're all making these observations about the piece of trash on the ground. And somebody walks up, <laughs> picks up the piece of trash and puts it in the garbage can that is two feet away and just keeps walking. And everybody else is stunned. It, that, I'm reminded of that, thinking, thinking of your question. It's, it's, the, it's so easy. <laughs> if we put down uh, the shackles, the, you know, if we stepped outside of the blame game, you know, it's not the abstract that is uh, controlling this. It is not always other people's fault. Sometimes it is, but just pointing a finger doesn't do anything to actually change the situation. So I think it, I think it does uh, force the question though, if it's been that easy, if I've been able to articulate this, other people have understood this too, right? I am not an, uh, you know, superhumanly wise person. <laughs> um, I, I think I understand this. I, I, other people do too, but I think uh, maybe people don't really want the change. Maybe people don't, maybe people are afraid of the change because they don't know what's on the other side. Um, or, I heard Bill, somebody's. Mm -hmm. or Bill, let me, let me ask you this. Or do you think that the systems were designed not to unleash one's individuality to the point where people are just don't have the self-trust unless the institution gives it to them. Mm. This would be the time for a Marxist critique, wouldn't it? To be looking at the systems of power. Um, I'm not a Marxist, but, uh, but I think it's useful to, to think in that, in that way, sometimes looking at the, the power dynamic, right? So those institutions that were built up. So like I talked about, um, you know, the, the hierarchical organizations like religious groups or, you know, governments that are, uh, authoritarian, right? It increases the distance between the people and the power. Mm. Um, and that gets in the way, right? So if, if people, uh, if the power remains with the people who like that structure, <laughs> who's going to know any differently, right? So change has to start happening for the people who are at the bottom of that power pyramid um, to be able to even see what the other possibilities are. You know, so, so it's comfortable. It's comfortable. People get into a rhythm of, you know, the, the standardization offers a lot of comfort and security and predictability. Great. Cool. But there are other possibilities that might help you flourish as a person a little bit more. And wouldn't that be nice to start with the like, who are you as a person? And what do you want out of this life? Instead of, I want to work my tush off and make a lot of money so that when I'm 70, I can stop working and enjoy it for about seven or eight years before my body goes into decline. You know, so if, if we can start making decisions for ourselves, I mean, we saw this out of the pandemic, right? So the, right. Um, the uh, and it, it's a total example of, uh, that highlights, uh, if we don't start with our humanity, then we're denying our humanity. So it, it, we, the work from home phenomenon suddenly worked for a lot of people in a lot of organizations. And now it's safer to start returning to the office. Uh, and there's tension there because people realize, oh, I don't, I don't actually have to spend X number of hours in that office to do my job well. In fact, I can be a more full human being and design my schedule around life as a human being. And maybe that's good for everybody. Um, so it, 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 
I think that's been one of those examples of like, here's this change that has been a total response, but it opens the door for transformation. We didn't choose to be forced to work from home, but now we can make the choice to move forward by reverting (laughs) or, hey, maybe we're onto something and iterate and keep moving forward. But it, but it comes back to that starting with the human first and not prioritizing the human over the institution. Well, and this is interesting, Bill, because it's clear um, just listening to you that the pandemic made those who uh, enjoyed working from home more resilient because they had to, you know, tap into their own resources, tend to their families, you know, create their own schedules and tackle their assignments. Uh, on their own terms and they got and they got used to it mm-hmm. and they did it because and they got used to it because it made them more resilient they basically began discovering something about themselves that standardization never gave them the opportunity to discover mm-hmm. and, and it's interesting mm-hmm. because recently i was on a call with an executive and not just about themselves but about each other yeah thank you it, it, very good yeah. it, it, okay and that's a perfect transition to this one example bill thank you for saying that is that that in discussions with an executive uh, just a few days ago, uh, he said, you know, Glenn, you know who has the problem with remote work? It isn't our employees. It's me. It's executives like myself mm. who in standardization feels that if the individual wants to do things on their own terms, I lose power. I lose some sense of control. Mm. Uh, and, and so, I, again, this validates your notion that, you know, transformation needs to be human-centered, which begs the question, Bill, where did your understanding about all of this come from? I mean, I feel like I'm talking to an encyclopedia. I mean, (laughs) how did you get us? How did you learn all these things? I'm sure it's a little bit of professional and personal. Uh, Yeah, it's, I I think um, we are the product of our experiences. Right. And what we do with that is is how we present in the world. Right. So um, my my understanding of this, I think, uh, you know, well, first personal, well, let's start with the human. We'll start with the personal. Um, my identity, uh, you know, I from a very young age knew I was gay. And, and even though I'm cisgendered, I'm white, I grew up in an affluent area. I'm well educated. Um, so I grew up with a lot of privilege. Um, but. I was on the outside. I was on the margins. I was different. And I knew that and I didn't have language for it. And it just uh, like so many people who have um, similar experiences, um, it, it, the isolation, the sense of isolation is strong and, and has a really long lasting effect. I think every kid who, who grows up like that, they figure out how they're going to cope, how they're going to, how they're going to um, navigate the world despite the whatever challenges are, are coming at you. Um, I started to hone my instincts to look for <laughs> other people who are going to see me as a person first and not as, oh, you're different. You know? Mm-hmm. So I think I think people who grow up on the margins, um, people who know discrimination from early on or or later in life, they start to hone their instincts to identify those people and to identify those very, very human traits, because those are the people that we can trust. Those are the people that we know uh, are going to keep us safe. So I, I, I looked, I grew up looking for those glimpses of humanity. I think another big piece of um, 
what shaped me and how I see all this is my family, my first context, right? I'm the youngest of 10. So I was born into a diverse and crowded group. Uh, and it was, uh, and it was a lot of fun and it was really hard uh, and I'm the youngest. And so I got to watch all my siblings grow up, uh, from a little bit of a distance and I got to see them watch, uh, make a lot of successes and they made a lot of failures. So, uh, so I, they were, they were very helpful in my own upbringing in that way, but it was also part of a family business. So my grandfather had started a, a company that my dad led for a long time. Uh, and, uh, and that was, um, that was interesting growing up in a family business. Uh, there was an expectation that we were all going to work there at some point. I was not going to have a career in <laughs> manufacturing, so I was not going to do that. But I put in a couple of summers. I worked at the help desk, which is okay. hilarious to me today that I worked. At, uh, I was on the help desk when I was in high school. Um, but the uh, but growing up uh, and several of my siblings had long careers in the company. Uh, and, uh, when you grow up in a family business, the lines between family and business blur, <laughs> you know, when your dad is your boss and your boss is your dad, mm. things get very complicated, whether you're, you're in the kitchen or in the office. So, I, so I grew up in that context that had me thinking about the tension between people and institutions, you know, from, from day one. Um, academically, you know, I, I studied religion and I got into the comparative study of religion because I, I loved understanding how culture gets made, how those how those moments um, get made, uh, how those communities get built and how entire long you know, multi-generational traditions start to expand and, and influence the world. So that was interesting. And I was paying attention to those kinds of things. Mm. Um, I also when I um, when I went back to grad school for uh, a degree in school leadership. I was introduced to the philosophy of Nell Noddings, uh, who, who herself, as a philosopher, she started as a classroom teacher uh, and then uh, developed what, what, what she called the ethics of care, mm. where rejecting kind of classic ethics that guide our thinking and how, you know, how we construct our moral universe, typically in, in, uh, in the West. Um, Nell Noddings turns it on its head and, and says, no, 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 you have to start with the person. You start with the relationship. Uh, in looking at schools as an example, you know, the school uh, that the student is, what should I say, the student is infinitely more important than the subject matter. And everything from disciplinary conversations to uh, events for the community or how uh, programs get built, she challenges educators to, to look at the person first, build the, build the program, build the school, build the discipline structures around what's going to help these individual people thrive. And that's what's going to make a true community. So being introduced to Nell Noddings really uh, gave, gave me language for things that I, as a young teacher, was learning. And then that I saw, and then I saw every day, I'm like, oh, this is, how, this is how transformation happens. It's not about filling these young people with all this wonderful knowledge that I've acquired. It's, okay, how can I create a context where you are going to be your best self <laughs> and I'm going to try to help you along the way, but really you're doing all the work. Um, so that was a, that sort of my, between my uh, early uh, academic stuff and also um, my early career stuff, I had a really clear sense of, I need to be person centered, whether I'm in my career or in my life. And that, and that became, that became really clear to me. 
um, and then different roles that I've had, uh, it, it's all it's all come back to that uh, building and sustaining relationships, because I know that those relationships are building this community and this community is shaping the world. So, Bill, as we get near uh, our time to wrap it up, um, you're making me feel as if we're now experiencing a blurry line between hierarchy and human. What do you think? Is it that blurry? I, th- <laughs> I think it's a clear line. I think, uh, well, let's extend the metaphor. So if, uh, I think it's a line that maybe is blurred in some spaces and it's chipped away in others, at others and it's reinforced at others. You know, I think everybody is coming at it from a different angle and with a different vigor, uh, you know, pursuing that kind of change to, to be able to dismantle hierarchical systems that do not serve everybody's interest. Um, so is it a blurred line? Maybe in some spots, but I think for some people it's actually reinforced or they're trying to actively reinforce it. And then others they've been able to chip away and been able to break through. So you get to see examples of people who have made real change. They've started companies or they started schools or they've uh, written a book that is a different way of thinking and is, is, is starting to build a new path toward whatever is next. Um, yeah. Look, Did I mess I, with your metaphor too much? <laughs> oh, no, no. Look, Bill, I'm just asking the question and maybe I asked it the wrong way, but mm. I, I feel that most people are still trying to find the human in the, in the hierarchy. In other words, uh, they, people may be at a certain level, but what gives them a pass not to be human? And is it that they're not ready to mm-hmm. give up uh, their sense of power? Uh, is it not that that should be tied to not being human because you could be powerful and be human, but, but why is it maybe that we can't accelerate the sense of, of, of our human dignity when we think about transformation? Because your entire message on this on, uh, in our conversation today is that at least my takeaway is there is no transformation without putting the human first. So if the leaders in these large institutions can't be human and turn the spotlight of accountability on themselves, can we transform it all? Mm. Yes. I'm hopeful. I'm an eternal optimist. You know, I think uh, a general rule of thumb for me uh, is don't tell other people what they're experiencing. And in hierarchical organizations, um, the top sets the tone, right? Or develops the message. Um, That's telling everybody else within the organization what to feel. Here's what you're feeling right now. And if you feel something differently, it may be um, disruptive. It may be rejected. It may be treated as hostile. Um, Just for pointing out, Hey, this, uh, there is another way to see this. I think, um, I think our view is blocked in terms of what is our potential, what is our real capacity, and people in power. I think it's the responsibility of people in power to dismantle those, uh, whatever it is that's blocking um, everybody's ability to see what's next or what is possible. You know, I think the, um, if, if people are comfortable in, some sort of a, in a hierarchy that's not good for humans, 
It's because they've been told and conditioned and they ultimately believe, oh yeah, this is good for me. And it might be good for some people and that's great, but it's not good for everybody. And, and, and so again, we can't tell everybody, oh, this is good for you. No, 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 trust me. It's good for you. You don't know what you're feeling right now. I'll tell you what you're feeling. Here's what you need. So I think that's the, the, that, that, that comes back to relationships, right? So our relationships, especially if we have some modicum of power in our grasp, is to use that relationship <laughs> or to use that power in the service of that relationship of bringing everybody up instead of keeping everybody in place. So we have lots of opportunities to do that. Every conversation with somebody, anytime you're walking down the hallway and acknowledging somebody, that's a way to acknowledge, hey, you're human. I'm human. We're here at this moment. Cool. Don't have to be best friends, but you can acknowledge each other's dignity and then keep moving. That's a practice that if you can internalize, if you can do that regularly, you start to see the humanity a lot more boldly, a lot more brightly and a lot more um, beautifully than than before well i think you may have answered but i'm going to give you the room to 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 add to it if you'd like and here's my final question uh bill is how should people view relationships now Hmm. how how can they in the service of not telling other people what to feel (laughs) exactly i will say this um i I view relationships as primary in any context. Um, they've got to be the priority. The person and the relationship to the person have got to be our starting points for everything. And that's for myself. That's for my own ethical decisions. So when I know that I have failed, it's because I have not done this in the service of other people as people. Hmm. And if I can prioritize people through those relationships, if I can cultivate relationships with the people that I need to connect with, with the people that I need to be influenced by, then I'm bolstering myself. I'm, I'm on the path toward becoming my best self. Um, and you know, following what Mohandas Gandhi said, if I can change myself, then I can change the world. Bill, I'll tell you, every time I talk to you, I always feel as if you're very present. And I think that uh, you bring a, a level of wisdom and understanding of human dignity that certainly makes you distinct, my friend. So thank you so much for, for being on the show and just for imparting upon us uh, what it means to be human in these times of transformation. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Glenn. And as we always leave the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't, do what others won't, and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thanks again, Bill. Always a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.